Welcome to In the Queue. I am your host, Andrew. And I am your other host, Phil. And we are here to talk to you about movies, as we are. Every time. Every time. So we're glad that you're here. We're glad that we're here. And we are glad that movies exist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad for one. <laughs> uh, we hope that you're glad, too. That's why you're here and listening. So uh, today... We're going to be taking on another listener's choice film. We've been doing these at a pretty good clip recently, one a week for the last little bit. We've been getting a lot of listener's choice suggestions. Yeah. And that is from you, the listeners. From you guys. Uh, We really appreciate that. And we encourage you to keep them coming. Yes. We have have, uh, a blog at www.in-the-q. That's the letter Q.com. You can find us there and you can post any of those suggestions that you have on our blog, or if you'd rather, you can go to our Facebook page, which is www. Or, no, it isn't. No. It's on Facebook. It's in the queue. Search for in the queue. In the queue. Q U E U E. Film conversations with Andrew and Phil. If you add that last part, I think you're definitely going to find it um, speedier. Yeah, you, yeah you'll, you'll find it much, much faster if you put all of that in there. Yeah. But you'll find us anyway. Yeah. You can also find us on iTunes by doing the same thing. On iTunes, we, we have a podcast you can subscribe to, and we encourage you to do that. So any of those methods are viable methods for finding us online, and we encourage you to put those listener suggestions on Facebook mm-hmm. and on our blog. We're loving them. It's one of the best parts about our job here at In The Queue, folks. It really is. Yeah. I, I'm loving it. Yeah. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking about a movie called Holy Motors. Holy Motors. Yeah. Uh, A surrealist film from 2012. This was recommended to us by Jeff. Jeff from Greensboro. Greensboro, North Carolina. He said to us, What listeners do you have recommending you Bad Teacher and Your Highness? Watch Holy Motors. That's my listener's choice. A rather provocative statement. Provocative statement. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's saying that you, the listeners, maybe don't have the best taste in films. He's either throwing down the gauntlet or we're mm. reading a little bit more inflection in his writing than actually was intended. I love it. I love reading that inflection into the writing. I noticed you were really enjoying it over there. It's pretty great. It's pretty great. But nevertheless, we went and watched Holy Motors. That's right. And we are going to talk about it today. Uh, As I said, Holy Motors is a film from 2012. It is a French film directed by Leos Carax. I don't know if there's an alternate pronunciation of that that I am clueless about. I'm sure there probably is. But it concerns the adventures of Mr. Oscar, Mm -hmm. who is a gentleman that rides around Paris in a white stretch limo all night mm-hmm. and seems to have made appointments with individuals mm-hmm. and he will go to these appointments and strange things will happen and then he'll go back to his limo do a quick costume change put on some makeup emerge as a completely different character and go to another appointment Yep. and these appointments run the gamut they are Every, everything from motion capture sex to uh, to 
intimate uh, father daughter conversations, right? Yeah, putting in a glass eye and putting in a glass eye, stumbling around and biting strange street urchin. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's a whole variety of, of different characters and scenarios. It really is, and it is. Uh, it's got a, a rather fascinating cast of people that that came to be associated with it. Um, Edith Scobe is the limo driver mm-hmm. in the film, uh, who is a very famous French actress who has been acting for many, many years, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, is probably most famous to American audiences for her role in Georges Franju's uh, Eyes Without a Face. Right, Criterion release. Criterion release, which I guess I shouldn't say American audiences are familiar with her because it's a French film, but it's probably the one that has the most penetration in the American market. I, I would say that you are right to introduce it as such because I still think that is, judging from her filmography, that is probably is going to have the most recognition among American audiences, especially yes. people who are familiar with Holy Motors because I think the people who know Criterion and the people who watch movies like this are are, you know... They have some some things in common. I would agree. I would agree. Uh, but in addition to Edith Scope, you have uh, uh, luminary pop superstar Kylie Minogue. Yeah. You have Ava Mendez. Mm-hmm. And then you have in the lead role of Mr. Oscar, Denis Levant. A rather magnificent performance, I would say. Uh, fascinating performance and a, a really 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 interesting one uh and he he really turns in a, a rather wonderful performance in this movie that makes no sense <laughs> <laughs> i say that i say that half jokingly i think that there is sense to be made of this and i think that it is an interesting film but it is weird it is a very surreal film it, it is in the surrealist tradition i would say yeah and uh and it is hard to get a handle on. I actually had to watch it in two segments. Mm-hmm. I I had to. I was very tired on the day that I started watching it, and I, my brain, I couldn't like bring my brain to the point where it, it could comprehend what was happening. So I, I stopped myself and then returned to it the next day and was in a much better state of mind that's, to take on the film. That's really interesting to me because I wonder if, if using your brain um, really is going to enhance the experience or the, or the <laughs> understanding of this film. Yeah. 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 It might not. Who knows? I mean, it's possible this, this is a film that's meant to be experienced on a certain surface level. Uh, yeah. I, I personally, I'm sort of getting into to my feelings about the film right now. And, and that is, um, I don't know if, this film is meant to exist as something greater than a moment to moment experience or dream that you, or that you undergo, or if there is something to be gained by interpreting some of the absolutely bizarre things that happen and seem to have no connection to one another. I I, I said it. Oh no, no, I know. I, I know completely what you said. I don't necessarily agree with that though. I think that there is sense to be made of this. And I actually, there is one scene in the film that I pinpointed as the, the one that really was the crux of the, of the entire film. Mm-hmm. There's only one point at which there is another human being in the limo with Mr. Oscar mm-hmm. 
and his limo driver, Celine. And it is this man who has scarring on his face and sits there and talks to him, talks to Mr. Oscar about the schedule he's keeping and, and sort of like, you know, uh, whether it, it's sort of this nihilistic conversation, or maybe not nihilistic, but uh, existential, existential conversation yeah. um, about uh, his worth and his value. And it became clear to me over the course of this conversation that they were essentially talking about the cinema and the power of cinema. Well, and then you, you'll probably mention that, you know, the name of this actor is Oscar, too. And it's, there's a yes. definite connotation to, obviously. There is, there is definitely a connotation. And each of the vignettes that he takes part in seem to cover different genres of film like they 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 it's sort of it's sort of after you know after you you get through two or three or four of them you start to realize that it's really just sort of playing up the contrivances and and uh sort of overdone tropes of various different genres of film you mean genres of film yeah and i felt like each of them was was intentionally a, a, a kind of a, a a mini version of that genre. Well, you make an interesting point, and the, now that I actually think about this a little bit more and, and hear your perspective, I'm sort of getting some other ideas too about about what these episodes can mean. And, and because if you look, if you're talking about how each time Oscar looks into his classic, you know, backstage mirror with the light bulbs around it, it's obvious yeah. that there could portraying him as a, a classic you know, actor, Schauspieler, yeah. as they say in German. Yeah, a stage actor, right. if anything. And, then, and if the world is a stage, then he goes out into it, and we see him perform the genres of um, musical later in the film with Kylie Minogue, uh, the, the genre yeah. of horror or, or thriller when he actually mm-hmm. has to execute somebody. Uh, there's the a genre of action film, right? There's also the genre of pornography as there's a scene where he develops a monster erection when he is with Ava Mendez. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. And, and it really, it, it comes back to that. And yeah, and we see that that might be the first, maybe not the first film, I, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what are you getting? At? I'm, I'm, I'm suddenly thinking immediately about nymphomaniac and, uh, uh, antichrist. I was like, that might be the first time I've seen an erection on film that wasn't just a pornographic film. But I, I think it's, uh, I think it's happened before. I have a film. It has listeners. If you know what regardless movie this is, post. <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, a real topic for conversation there. <laughs> this will be our most um, listened to episode yet. <laughs> <laughs> but the but it all comes back to that one scene that comes about halfway through the film, where he. It, like it seems almost like a, a lament of the decline of the power of film to captivate and to change lives and to like really do something. I think it, it it's almost an indictment of the art form as something that doesn't appeal in the same way that it used to. Hmm. It, it it doesn't take on these greater things. I think that I think that by by watering these these not watering them down condensing these film genres into these short little vignettes that are are 
easy to do. I think that it it actually it almost seems uh, harsh and critical mm-hmm. of the of the the film genres. There there's this one where he he goes home, quote unquote home, and when he actually gets home, you discover that his family is a family of chimpanzees. And he, and like it, it's it's like this weird thing where it's like treated very seriously and it's treated in a very straightforward way as as somebody you know coming home at the end of the day might right weary, weary and and ready to come home to have be greeted by his wife and child, but wh- his wife and child are chimpanzees, which is you know I've, chimpanzees have been used a million times in films as sort of cheap comedy, right? Right just stand-ins to, to do that. So I I feel like it's almost like, I don't know, it, it's it's either a satirical jab at like the idea that anybody could be filling in these roles, you know, even a chimpanzee could do what these people are doing, or it's saying like, well, here's this stupid trope that gets thrown around all the time. Let's put it in a, in a, in a context where it's not appropriate. Well, my it, like maybe maybe by by extension saying that it's never really appropriate to do this. It's dumb all the time. Yeah, I, my feeling with the movie was that as I watched it and all these outrageous things happened, um, it's almost like once once the movie got going and we saw that this was a movie about a man named Oscar who who travels through Paris. He has these jobs that he does, and we sort of get a sense. We sort of get settled into what the the backbone of the movie is. And then the things that are kind of the variable elements are what actually happens on all of these adventures once he gets yeah. out of the limo. I almost felt like, especially near the ending, that we were watching things that took place merely just to subvert our expectations about what would happen next. And I, and I found myself frustrated thinking that I was watching something that was not, not trying to go, not trying to meet me halfway in terms of of what the film was actually about. And I feel like if this is a film that it's a surrealist movie in the grand tradition of movies like Ushen Andalou or movies that, you know, that other filmmakers made back in the, the days when surrealism was just starting to, you know, have a, an impact and a power. Like Bo- Boonwells, lots of Boonwells. I, I actually am speaking of Boonwell in particular um, and mo- his movies where he satirized the bourgeoisie. I felt like, in Holy Motors, if this is going to be the kind of surrealism that that does shake up some kind of established tradition, and you're getting at that, Andrew, with with your talk about yeah. those different genres that that yeah. it's sort of that it's sort of you know poking at, um, I just felt like it it needed to go actually it needed to be more shocking. Uh, for for me to really sort of yeah. take it as something that could that actually had some real potency, like Boonwell's films had back in their day, it needed. I felt like it didn't go far enough to really make me think that there was something something beyond the pale, something or something beyond the surface for me to really kind of pick apart. Yeah, uh, I, I uh, it's interesting that you thought about Boonwell. Um, I I didn't go back in my catalog too far to to compare him. I was actually look watching this film, I was thinking about two filmmakers in particular who are contemporary filmmakers that make what I would describe as fairly surrealist films. One is and I'm I'm probably gonna murder this name and I apologize for that in advance, but a Chittapong Wirastical. 
who has made movies like uh, Uncle Boon Me mm-hmm. and uh, Syndromes in a Century, films like that. And Bella Tarr, uh-huh. who, who uh, I've only seen Werkmeister Harmonies of his, but uh, really interesting, surreal kind of film. And the, the interesting thing about those filmmakers is even though those films are very strange and very surreal, uh, it, it, the, the figuring out of the riddle becomes part of the watching experience, right? You're, you're, you're watching this unfold and you're fascinated by what a lot of this could mean. Uh, I remember in Syndromes in a Century, which I didn't particularly like. I'm not a big fan of either of these filmmakers. Mm-hmm. But I, I was, remember watching Syndromes in a Century and there's this, there's this moment where this, I guess, if I remember correctly, this fire starts in this uh, lab and, uh, and there's like a lot of smoke and there's a built-in smoke, you know, exfiltration system that pulls all the smoke out of the room and and sends it into another place. Mm-hmm. And there there's a shot that just lingers on this smoke being sucked into this conduit for, I don't know, an unbearable amount of screen time. Probably five, seven, ten minutes, something like that. Uh-huh. And you're just sitting watching this happen and, and nothing else is happening. Uh, so you're you're sort of you're expecting something and then nothing happens. And I felt like this in some ways uh, was in in some ways the opposite of that, I guess, where you were expecting it to try to do strange things. But, you know, by the second or third one of these, you're like, okay, weird things are going to happen. I get it. Okay, great. Mm -hmm. But, uh, but I, it didn't. It didn't seem to me to be working something out. I the only thing that I, the only way that I could approach this film by the time I got to the end of it was to think of it as just a, a critique, uh, in and of itself, a critique of film, of the world of film, and and what film has come to, mm-hmm. and uh, and and I think that that makes more sense to my brain than trying to figure out. Whether, you know, uh, we, we've talked before about the tin drum, for instance, and the fact that it's like it's just heavy on allegory. Everything that happens in that movie is an allegory for something else. Uh-huh. And it frustrates the hell out of me. I don't care. I don't I don't want to sit there working out every stupid allegory and being like, oh, this is this horse head being eaten by eels. I have no idea what this is. Right. You know, like, thank you so much. But it. it I didn't necessarily feel that this film was was doing it wasn't going to that level. I didn't feel like everything was allegorical. In fact, I felt like very little of it was allegorical. I felt like it was actually very straightforward. And that straightforwardness was in a critique of of the the conventionalism of modern cinema. Interesting. Well, I, I would also argue I'd make the point that that uh Tin Drum I I really like the Tin Drum, but beyond that uh, the the events that do take place, they also follow a linear narrative, which is not right. You, the horse head serves a a purpose in the story, other than just being allegorical too. Um, right. But right. but back to Holy Motors, um, I, I uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the the title for a second, Holy Motors itself, okay. and yeah. and the when you're watching the film, like I was, I was thinking, what is you know, what is the Holy Motors going to uh, reveal itself to be? You know, like, so right. obviously this takes place inside of a car for, for much of the screen time. And then at the very end of the film, spoiler alert, 
the limo pulls into its depot after dropping off Mr. Oscar, and it's the Holy Motors. That's uh, what that's what the the building is. That's labeled. the name of the depot, right? Yeah. And so all these limos are are parked there, and there's after the the limo driver exits, there's this really gloriously weird, almost <laughs> childish scene where the cars start talking to each other. Um, and uh, you could tell which ones are talking by their brake lights going on and off. Right. It's like it was quite funny. And I at that point, I was thinking, OK, I feel like I feel like this is a moment where the filmmaker is trying to meet us halfway. Now, what the hell is this <laughs> all about? Um, holy motors. Why is it holy? Um, are we bringing religion into the picture now? Uh well, for a while, for a while in the film, I, I I had that in the back of my mind, and I was trying to think to myself, I was like, so is this guy like an an angel? Is he going around and and fulfilling Andrew, people's it's, desires and like it's anyone's guess? <laughs> no, I yeah, I guess, but I I gave up on that after a while because I was like, it doesn't make the context of of so many of these vignettes it, it, that doesn't make sense. It doesn't fit yeah. necessarily, but at the same time. The limo driver. Well, all the limos are white, except for one that you see in the in the depot at the end. Oh, that's really? Black. Okay. Yeah, but uh, but most of the limos are white, and they, you know, it, it, the the limo drivers dress in white. There's a there's a point in the film where two of the limos get into a, like a little fender bender, um, and. A, and the the drivers ver- get a out. Verbal fen- oh, do you mean a literal fender bender or a verbal? Yeah, yeah. Well, they they or either they almost crash into each other or they bump into each other. Uh-huh. You don't actually see it happen, but you see the uh, drivers get out and start arguing with each other, and then the two passengers get out and go off on their own to have their own little mini vignette. Right. Not a mini vignette. It's actually a fully fleshed out vignette, and the. You know, so I was there was constantly I was like, what does this mean? Why? Why are these these people doing this? But then you get back to something like I think something as simple as the casting of Edith Scobe in the limo driver role role who in at the end of the film, again, you know, spoiler alert in sort of so far as this film can have spoilers, (laughs) which I don't really think it can because it's it's a such an unusual and and unconventionally constructed film. Uh, the the limo driver, Edith Scobe, before she leaves, but she gets out of the limo, she's parked it in the depot, she's going to leave, she puts on this mask that is identical, for all intents and purposes, to the mask that she wore in the film Eyes Without a Face. Right, and from 1960. From 1960. And... Then she says something to the effect of, I'm, I'm coming home, you know. It, it seems almost as a, like a, a, a farewell mm-hmm. sort of a thing to, to this deep, you know, whatever, the, 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 the evening that we've had with Mr. Oscar. And she goes off. But that's a clear, like, there's an unmistakable visual reference yeah. to the cinema of the 60s, right? Or at least this particular film from the 60s. And this very salient point is being made at the end of a two-hour film, whereas up until that point, I found myself 
watching a series of of almost disconnected things taking place, and then at the very end, I too recognize this this reference, yeah. and uh, to me, it's almost maddening to to sort <laughs> of to sort of try and unpack this after because it's almost like it's it's a provocative thing to do because this movie was shown at Cannes. I'm pretty sure it premiered at Cannes, yeah, and yeah. Uh, and of course, Cannes is the most prestigious festival for movies in the world, uh, maybe arguably or inarguably, uh, in France every year. Um, and I found myself thinking, like, it it forces you to reevaluate what you're what you've been seeing. And I found myself thinking that I was being provoked by somebody. And I didn't feel like, like I was really going to be sort of rewarded by by trying to dissect what they have what they have presented to me. And I and I I couldn't help but feel like this was something that um, was a collection of of events that took place on the surface. And um, as I said, if it's if it's going to be a surreal film in the in the style of somebody like Yodorovsky, I needed more more of that phantasmagoric element. Um, there's a there's a really lengthy scene with, yeah. with Kylie Minogue where it's some kind of a deconstructed musical number, and the whole time I was watching that, I was thinking like, visually, I'm not getting much out of this. It's it's just the same yeah. the same type of tracking shot of her singing. I was it's not a very interesting song. It's a, it's, it's, not... a, it's a boring scene. The lyrics don't seem to have anything to do with anything. Uh, and I found myself thinking, if this is supposed to be a, a, a purely visual auditory experience, like like a lot of the great surrealist films are, like, I mean, to look, take a movie like Wild at Heart, David Lynch's Wild at Heart. That is a an, an immaculately sensory experience if you just look at it from a visual and auditory perspective. But with this film, I was thinking, particularly in that scene with Kylie Minogue, um, this just doesn't seem to fit. But it, don't you think that that could be exactly what I'm talking about? Like, maybe it doesn't work for you or I, but the the scene where she they're 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 singing this song. They're in this uh, dilapidated mall. What was once like a shopping mall. Uh huh. Or look, looked like something like a shopping mall. Um, they they mentioned something something in the dialogue about that as they're coming into the building, and uh, they're wandering around. It's totally deserted. It's ruined. There's you know dirt and garbage and broken glass and everything everywhere. Mm-hmm. And she's singing this boring song that has no heart to it, where the words don't really seem to mean anything. In my conception of this film, that's it's almost a an indictment of modern cinema they're saying you know uh leos carax is saying this this is this is what i see on screen i see soulless nothing Uh uh-huh surrounded by like the destroyed uh sort of structure of a world that was once better Hmm. you know you you basically you look at that and, and you he he i see him saying like this is this is what we got now, folks. An uninteresting, un you know, engaging. Well, is he talking about his own movie as well? No, I don't think so. I think his movie he thinks is more engaging. And I think in some ways he's right. But I, I don't think 
I I do buy your what you were saying about Yodorovsky basically like it needs to have more bombast or or something to it. It seems almost uh laconic in its approach. Like if, if this is a satirical deconstruction of the the movie industry, mm-hmm. which which is the closest thing that I could come to as an interpretation, I it doesn't have enough bite. The bite isn't there. And yeah, like I said, I think that People, well, me personally, I need, I just, as I said, I needed to have more of that kind of grotesquery throughout um, to really sort of separate this film as, as something that is working on my mind more than it seemed to be. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah, no, I, I understand it. I think, I think that we're both. Kind of, I mean, at this point, we're sort of repeating ourselves. <laughs> like, uh, you know, it, it it was a it was a dense movie, uh, which I think made an, an interesting stab at doing something good. I mean, this this movie was lauded by critics. It was on a lot of top, you know, best of lists last year. You know, best of twenty twelve lists. Well, and, uh, I think that's, and I, critics, critics, you know, they they love to do what we're doing now and and talk and discuss. I think that's. I I just wonder though if if the film were like even randomly different, would it still provoke the same amount of discussion? Just because it's something that's surreal. Possibly. Yeah. I don't know. It's hard to say. I would like to see more films by this filmmaker. Uh, I I I would be curious to see what other movies yeah look like he's worked with uh denny denny levant multiple times yeah um which if there's one one reason to see this movie more than anything else uh it's that yeah watching that watching the performance of of denny levant is really really pretty pretty interesting mm-hmm. yeah there's a there's a very rousing scene when uh he's he's marching around inside this sort of old traditional building playing an accordion. And uh, what basically happens is this chorus of other accordion players suddenly appear behind him, and then it's like a whole band. Uh, that was my favorite scene <laughs> in the whole movie. Well, that's because it, g- it gave you something. It gave you something to chew on. It gave you some it was joy. The, it was the entre-act, right? It was the intermission. Yeah, it, it gave you something, some kind of joy to experience, something joyous visually and aud- aud- you know, uh, auditorily. Music, yeah. Musically, let's say musically, um, yes. and 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 it's almost like it's it's like it's sustenance, it's sustenance in a movie. I mean, just give me give me more of that, and then I'll I'll go further with you. I'll I'll even think about your movie more as long as there's more of this type of you know material that'll that'll keep me engaged, not just uh, intellectually, but but joyfully. If this is really a movie lamenting the the lack of joy in cinema, then show me joy. Yeah, no, I get you. I get you. So uh, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. I, I think that it's a it's a slow, dense slog to get through. I, as I said, I almost never stop a movie in the middle, but I just I I couldn't do it in this. I had to I had to watch it in two parts. As did um, I. And uh, yeah, I it 
it's it's not necessarily uh, worth your time unless you're really a, a major film aficionado and and want to try and like sort of attack this and unpack it or a big surrealist fan because it it certainly is that if nothing else. If I could make a recommendation for people who are thinking about seeing this film, is I would say watch it with some friends because then I think you'll you'll be more rewarded if you can talk about it with people who've also seen it. Yeah. Yeah, I took a, a bunch of my friends at one point to see Matthew Barney's Drawing Restraint 9 when it was in theaters for a very short amount of time. And they all hate me for it. Because um, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's also a surrealist movie that makes absolutely no sense and it's ridiculous and weird and dumb. Mm-hmm. But it 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 was one of the my singular experiences in the cinema and i will never forget it it was so much fun just to see the expressions on my friends faces <laughs> were you eyes were your eyes darting between the screen and your friends faces as you a little bit yeah yeah <laughs> yep. it was great anyway we are done talking about that movie <laughs> forever well maybe not i might i might return to it at some point but we'll be moving on and in our next episode we'll be talking about the new film the Rover, uh. starring Guy Pierce and Robert Pattinson. It looks to be really exciting. I am excited. I actually you had nothing to say. You just <laughs> you went totally silent. No, I was I was my mouth was agape. I'm looking. Yeah. I'm looking forward to this film. It's gonna be it's gonna be really uh, excellent. I think, or at least I hope. Uh, directed by the same director who did Animal Kingdom mm. a couple years ago, yeah. uh, which was a really interesting film, Australian film. So please join us for that episode, and we will catch you on the flip side. Have a good one.